sleep. It is the underpinning of so much of your health. If you can't sleep well, it impacts everything. It impacts your exercise, your nutrition, your mental health, your metabolism, all of it. And I know for a fact that so many women listening right now struggle to fall asleep at night, struggle to stay asleep at night, and simply don't get the sleep that their body needs to operate at its best. And that might be you, which is exactly why I've asked my good friend and renowned doctor of sleep medicine on the show with us today. Lieutenant Colonel Matthew S. Brock is the medical director of the Sleep Disorders Center in San Antonio, which is the largest sleep center in the United States Department of Defense. He also serves as the sleep medicine consultant to the U.S. Air Force Surgeon General. Pretty cool, right? And he's an associate professor of neurology at the Uniformed Services University. Dr. Brock is a leader in clinical medicine and research in the Air Force and has received so many awards in this field that I simply can't name them all. So needless to say, prepare to have all of your sleep struggles solved, okay? Now, before we hop in and talk about exactly what to do to be a better sleeper, I have to insert that the views that Dr. Brock expresses are his own and not the official stance of the Air Force and the Department of Defense. Okay, here we go. Hey friend, my name is Megan Dahlman. As a certified trainer and nutrition coach, I'm on a mission to change the conversation around fitness, nutrition, and taking care of ourselves as moms. If you're tired of restrictive fad diets and all or nothing workouts, in a culture that tries to sell you the lie that your value is tied to the number on the scale, then you're in the right place. I'm here to equip and encourage you to take simple steps towards the healthy life you want for yourself and the people you love. Welcome to Self-Care Simplified. Well, hey, Dr. Brock, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Megan. Thank you. Now, I have to admit, I feel a little funny calling you Dr. Brock because to me, you're just, you're Matt. <laughs> you you and your wife, Kelly, are such good friends of ours and you know, you're my husband's best friend and you were in our wedding and we've had lots of adventures together. And through you, I've gotten this inside scoop on the science of sleep throughout the years. So I feel pretty privileged about that. And we are so privileged to have you here today. Now, I could go on and, and puff you up and talk about how you're one of the most published and decorated sleep doctors in the country and how you do incredible work with our troops in the Air Force. And I mentioned some of that in the intro already, but I'm going to throw a curveball at you first, like right out of the gate. Great. Hey, <laughs> you're I'm, up for it. I'm happy to be here. This is, this is, exciting. It's great to be with you, Megan. So you have literally traveled the world. How many countries have you and Kelly been to now? Close to 60. Wow. Wow. So of all the countries you visited around the world, who do you feel has the best and who has the worst sleep habits and why? <laughs> That's a great question. Um, it sort of varies on by culture or even by like what part of the earth people live on. So culture, like you go to Spain or Argentina and they have a big siesta period. So they rest after, after lunch and then they don't have dinner. If you go to a steakhouse in Argentina at 9 PM, you'll be the only one there. They have dinner super late. So seems like their sleep is crazy, but with their siesta period kind of mixed in there, it works for them. But you, you go up to like um, way up North, like Alaska or, or we've been up to an area called Svalbard that's up by the North Pole where it's in the summer at two in the morning, it's broad daylight. So they have to have amazing sleep habits to get good sleep, to block out all the light that gets in. And, and then in the 
winter, I'll try to get um, supplementary light because it's dark all the time. But uh, I would say the worst sleep is probably Americans. I was thinking you. you would probably say that. Yeah. Yeah. We, we average less than seven hours of sleep uh, per night. And a lot, pe- a lot of people get less than that. Um, in the population I work with, the military, over 70% average less than six hours of sleep per night. So insufficient sleep uh, is rampant in American culture uh, for a number of reasons. We're, we're hard workers. We have a lot to do, a lot, um, not just work, but entertainment. We have a lot of things to do. What a pain, right? Have to put your head on a pillow and go down for eight hours. Right. So inconvenient. <laughs> <laughs> and seven to nine is kind of the sweet spot, right? That's exactly right. Um, seven to nine hours is the recommended uh, for adults up to age 65 and then seven to eight above age 65. Oh, interesting. So a few months ago, I had a menopause expert on the show, Esther Blum. And one thing she said that shocked everybody the most was how at the crux of our metabolism issues and even our weight gain issues as we age was a lack of good sleep. It seemed to kind of underpin almost everything about our health. It almost seemed like no matter what we do with our nutrition, what we do with our exercise, if we're not getting good sleep, we're fighting this uphill battle. So why is sleep so pivotal to how our bodies operate? I think that's a huge question, but maybe you can break that down for us a little bit. Yeah, it's, it is a big question. And you can think of exercise, diet, and sleep as a triad. I think of sleep as kind of the base of the pyramid, that it sort of sets, if you get good sleep, it leads to more energy. So you'll exercise and typically that'll lead to better eating habits. So it kind of goes in a, in a circle there. Um, but sleep is definitely one of the pillars of, of good health and good overall um, nutri- a good overall, yeah, healthy living. So I think the main functions of sleep, we're always still discovering new things, but one, one thing sleep does is give your metabolism a chance to slow down a bit. You go from 100% down to about 80% metabolism. So we don't go as low as like a bear when they hibernate or a hummingbird um, when they rest, but 80% allows us just to give the body and brain a little break. But then also we do memory consolidation during sleep. And that includes pruning memories that maybe we don't need and consolidating and strengthening synapses in the brain that have memories or things we've learned that we do need. That's why often when you can't figure something out late at night, you just sleep on it. You wake up with the solution because your brain has sort of worked it out through that process. And then another big thing that happens is cellular toxin removal. So we have a lot of metabolites, inflammation that our brain generates while being awake and we have a system in the brain that helps um, alleviate that. And the longer you sleep, the more of those toxins that you can remove. Finally, mm-hmm. also you get growth hormone release um, during sleep. This I've heard of. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's a big deal, um, not only for growing, especially in young people, but also in restoration. So elite athletes um, in some cases will use growth hormone or even drugs that will promote slow wave sleep that is when your growth hormone release is released. They'll use that to get more growth hormone release so that they can exercise the next day just as hard as they did the day before. So that that is um, an important process of sleep as well. Now, when you said slowing down our metabolism, it's so interesting. I feel like we've been so conditioned to hear like slow metabolism is a bad thing. <laughs> so right. like how can we kind of get like out of that mindset and realize like, actually, this is a good thing to have things kind of ratchet back a little bit. 
at night? Like having that metabolism slow down, why is that good? Well, just having a, a basically a period where your body can take a break because you're always going, going, going. Your brain is too. And the longer you're awake, sort of the more inflammation builds up in your brain. And that's why you start yawning to try to cool your brain down. And when it gets sort of overheated, it can cause you to have um, breakdown in thinking, poor concentration, even professionalism lapses, things like that when you have insufficient sleep or sleep deprivation. So it just allows us to sort of take a step back. Um, one way to think of it, we're talking about other cultures, there's, they've actually looked at hunter-gatherer cultures and looked at how they slept, um, some in the Amazon and then Tanzania and uh, the Kalahali Desert in Namibia. And they go to sleep shortly after the sun sets. Their um, melatonin rises, they go to sleep. They sleep in one consolidated period but then during the day, they don't nap, but when it's hot out, they do rest, take a break, let their metabolism slow down under the trees in the hot sun. And that, they're not sleeping, but they're just giving their body a break. And what sleeping does for us is allow that to happen at night usually as well. Interesting. So wait a second. You said yawning cools our brain. Really? So it's supposed I to. <laughs> but they've, they've, yes, they've done studies where they've measured the temperature of the brain in animals and with a yawn, it cools down slightly and provides um, a cooling mechanism. Fascinating. Okay, that's super cool. So the other day, I asked a lot of the ladies in my audience, like, what what did they struggle with the most when it comes to sleep? And I'm I'm really hoping that you can help us solve the, solve these struggles just a little bit. And there were two big things. The first one was not being able to fall asleep. And maybe we can tackle that first. And then the second one was not being able to stay asleep. And that one seemed to be the bigger issue. So let's tackle that first one. So what's going on when we can't fall asleep at night? And what can maybe we do to help with this? Right. So the, when someone can't fall or stay asleep um, and they have daytime dysfunction because of that, so they have fatigue or other problems during the day, we call that insomnia, insomnia disorder. Um, some people just have trouble falling asleep here and there when they don't have daytime problems for that. Those are insomnia symptoms. But if it becomes chronic going on for months, that it becomes insomnia disorder. And insomnia um, is a real problem in our society. Between 10 to 30% of people suffer from insomnia. And a lot of this is due to the stress that we have and our busy lifestyles. Those hunter-gatherer cultures I mentioned, less than 5% of them suffer from insomnia. So this is an industrial phenomenon that we've sort of brought upon ourselves. So a lot of it has to do with, um, there's a lot of different types of insomnia, but the most common type is called psychophysiological insomnia. And it's basically when you can't quiet your brain down. You're having those racing thoughts when you're trying to sleep. You're thinking about something you said that day or your next day, or something you have to do for work or relationships in your life. And it prevents us from falling asleep when we're worrying about those types of things. So there's two main treatments for trouble falling asleep, um, two big categories. There's medications, which is what a lot of people do. And actually the over-the-counter hypnotic or sleep aid industry is over a $10 billion industry, billion with a B. And that's the wow. over-the-counter. It's larger than the pharmaceutical hypnotic industry, the over-the-counter industry, so taking mm -hmm. things like Benadryl. So what we know from that is that some people can get short-term um, efficacy or short-term effectiveness from those medications, but they tend to lessen in 
effectiveness over time, and they also cause side effects. So the real, uh, the, but why they're used so much is because they're easy to use. It's easy to prescribe or easy to go to the store and purchase uh, a medication and just try to make a pill, make it go away. But the, um, all the clinical guidelines in sleep medicine recommend behavioral therapy or what's called cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia. And this is um, a treatment that is usually done one-on-one, but can be done in groups. Um, And you can see many different people are trained in it, but typically a psychologist or a sleep psychologist can perform this. But there are applications on on your phone. So there's an app called Insomnia Coach or CBTI Coach. Those are similar apps. CBTI stands for Cognitive Behavioral Therapy for Insomnia. But those can kind of walk you through some of the uh, components of these behavioral therapies that will help you fall asleep. And just to go over a couple quick ones, if you happen to be laying in bed for what you perceive to be a long time or what may be 15 minutes or more, this is without clock watching. You don't want to watch the clock. That can make you worry more. But if you, what you perceive to be a long time, that's when you need to get out of bed and go do something quietly in the dark. And then that can be a podcast or something without light. And I can talk about light in a moment, but you want to avoid light during, during the nighttime. So don't turn on all the lights and start cleaning or doing th- something active, something quiet. And then when you start to get sleepy again, and that may be a long time, depending on how bad your insomnia symptoms are. But when you start to get sleepy, and that means your eyes getting heavy, not fatigued, but about ready to fall asleep again, then you return to the bed and try again. Okay. And what you're doing there is you're creating an association uh, between your brain and the bedroom, especially the bed, as a place that only sleep should happen. Only sleep and intimacy should happen in the bed and bedroom. So things like worrying or watching television or reading or doing homework or eating or all these things people do in the bedroom and bed. When you get into bed, your brain doesn't know which one of those things to do. So it will automatically start to worry or what you're most commonly doing in bed. So this helps break those associations. So that's one that's called stimulus control. The other parts of it are to go to bed when you're sleepy and to try to avoid daytime naps. Um, And if you do all of those things, eventually your brain will start making positive associations with the bed and bedroom, and then you'll be able to sleep easier. So it's kind of like training. I mean, it's almost like this, it takes some time. It's a process because I feel like in that moment, a lot of people are like, just made me, I just need to go to sleep like right now. And that panic kind of sets in, but to almost in that moment, remind yourself, I'm, I'm just, I'm training this and any type of training can take some time is, is kind of what I'm hearing is it's almost like this training process. It really is. Um, actually another component of it is called cognitive therapy where you change the way you think about sleep. And a big part of that is decatastrophizing when you can't sleep. So taking a step back and saying, how many times have I had trouble sleeping? Did I lose my job the next day? Did I lose friendships? No, these bad things aren't going to happen. But in that moment at midnight, when you can't fall asleep, everything feels like the world's caving in on you. But part of this therapy is to help you take a step back from that as well. And then there's other components like limiting the amount of time in your bed. Some people with these symptoms, they'll try to go to bed really early like it. 8 p.m. and spend 10 hours in bed because they want to give their body that opportunity to sleep. But when your brain can only generate seven to nine hours of sleep and you're spending 10 hours in bed, by definition, you're going to be awake for several hours. So that that's a part of it too. And there's lots of other components that, that these apps I mentioned, and there's websites too um, that you can 
find if, if you can't find a, a sleep specialist that can help you in your area. But they are out there, but unfortunately, there's not enough people with that training. Um, so sometimes we have to use these other resources. Now, one thing that I've learned from you over the years is just like that, the um, environmental stimulus of, of just the train part of the training process is just kind of showing your body it's time to wind down, like dimming the lights and turning down that all that extra stimulus. And I think of all the people I know that have TVs in their bedroom and or sit up on their iPad in bed. And so you're recommending like, let's let's not do that. Let's let the bed really just be for the sleeping or intimacy and, and have all those other things. What, so what are some of those other environmental things that we can do that might help us fall asleep better? Absolutely. So what you're referring to is actually... Okay, let me cut in here real quick, because if you are like most women, your core is probably a constant source of frustration. Not only do your muscles feel completely MIA, but the fact that your core is on a permanent vacation means that the rest of your body isn't doing its job either. And sadly, this is going to lead to back pain, hip pain, shoulder pain, and the list goes on, all because your core muscles don't want to work. Let's change that. All right, I just created a brand new mini course for you that's entirely free. I'm calling it the five-day core tune-up, and I'm super excited about this because unlike other core routines out there, this is not just a bunch of targeted ab stuff. This is far more functional and thorough than that. And by the end of just five days, you will feel your core muscles firing. You'll feel your hips and glutes working, and you'll finally experience hope for your core and for the rest of your body. Five-day core tune-up, like I said, it's entirely free. I just want to give it to you as my gift. So just go to fivedaycore.com, and I will send you the day one video right away. You need this. Absolutely. So what you're referring to is actually called sleep hygiene, or we call healthy sleep yeah. practices. And uh, that actually is, is part of what we were talking about earlier, the, the cognitive behavioral therapy, but it's not the same. So I do want to tell your listeners that because some people think, oh, I know don't drink caffeine after lunchtime and I know no TV in the bedroom and, and they think that they have had this other treatment that I was talking about, the CVTI, but they are separate. Um, and so actually our academy recommends against using just sleep hygiene and isolation because people will think they've had this other therapy. But that said, it is very important. So some of the things to really um, focus on right around the, the bedtime is to, as you mentioned, get the lights down. So our brains and our eyes are very ex exquisitely sensitive to light, in particular blue light, light in the blue spectrum. And a lot of the light in the blue spectrum comes from electronics, as you mentioned. So your television, your iPhone or cell phone, your computer screen. But there's blue light and white light. So even having all the lights on in your kitchen um, uh, will could be a problem. So Really, a couple hundred years ago when we invented electricity, we really didn't know biologically what we were doing to ourselves. So this is why animals in general don't have insomnia. The sun sets, their melatonin rises, and they fall asleep. Well, for us, if we can get the lights down, and sometimes that's impossible, so I recommend people buy blue light blocking glasses. And you can get those on Amazon. Um, there's there's other uh, more expensive versions on like low, lowbluelights.com or Felix Gray or some of these other um, kind of more premium ones. But sometimes the lenses are clear. Uh, the ones I use have orange lenses, and that really blocks the blue light. 
The other thing it does is when you put on the orange lenses about two hours before bedtime, it kind of triggers your brain to now that you're seeing everything through orange, that it's time to wind down. Now it's time to kind of quiet down. It's not, you're also blocking that blue light, but also you're signaling your brain that it's time to start to get ready for bed and get in that bedtime habit. And I mentioned melatonin, which melatonin is, is very linked to your circadian rhythm. Um, and in order for your melatonin to really, melatonin is your pineal gland in your brain makes it and it helps you fall asleep. And so in order for it to rise, you really have to be in a dark environment. So people that are in bright light right up till bedtime, then they hop into bed. Well, now their melatonin is kind of sitting at zero. So it's going to take it a while, a couple hours to rise to where it will get in the range where you're peaking. And then that's when you're getting sleepy. So if you can start this, let's say you have a 10 p.m. bedtime. If at eight, you can get the lights down, let your melatonin start to rise. By the time 10 o'clock rolls around, you're getting sleepy and it's time to go to bed. Um, so that's kind of how you treat the light going to bed. The other important aspect of that is to make sure you're getting no light while you're sleeping. So that could be block out blinds. Um, but what I've found, even with the best blinds in my room, there's still light that can get through. And the human, the human eye can see even a candlelight from hundreds of yards away. So any light coming into your windows, even with blackout blinds, um, could be disrupting your sleep. So I use an eye mask. I know it can be a little, um, some people don't like wearing things on their face, but um, there are a lot of eye masks now. The one I use is um, called MZOO. It's on Amazon, but there's also one called, I think, Bucky, B-U-C-K-Y, 30 blinks or something. And they have, they have little um, carve outs for the eyes so that it's not pressing on your eyeballs. The MZO, oh, okay. yeah, the MZO one is, uh, it's actually memory foam and allows your eyes to move under it mm. so that when you're dreaming or you're having rapid eye movement, sleeping, your eyes are moving, it doesn't irritate your eyes. Oh, That'll fascinating. Keep, I'm sure they're yeah. super cute. Yes. <laughs> but <laughs> it keeps cute. it dark in the, in the room all yeah. night long and helps you stay asleep. It really does. And then when the sun starts to rise in the morning, that's when you want to let that light back in and start getting okay. natural light to help you wake up. So you just said the word stay asleep. <laughs> yes, now, I did. <laughs> that's, that's, I think, the bigger issue. And I think that a lot of the women in our audience, this is a big thing, is they can they seem to fall asleep fine, but then they're waking up at 2 or 3 or 4 a.m. and can't get back to sleep. So what kind of solutions do you have for them? And, and like, what's going on here? Right. Well, the first thing, if, if someone's talking to me in an appointment and they're in my sleep medicine clinic, first thing I want to do when someone can't stay asleep, and this is uh, not always the case and often not the case, but is make sure there's not another sleep disorder going on. For mm -hmm. instance, sleep, sleep apnea. Um, sleep apnea tends to cause what we're, what we're talking about, which we call maintenance insomnia. So initiation insomnia can't fall asleep. Maintenance insomnia can't maintain sleep. So if we hear no trouble falling asleep, but then waking up a lot during the night, we want to make sure there's no breathing disorder going on where patients are um, holding their breath or having obstruction of their airway by their tongue or other parts of the airway that lead them to wake up. But let's say that that's not the case. There's no snoring going on. There's no suspicion that it might be sleep apnea. Then we're dealing with one of the hardest forms of insomnia to treat, this early awakening kind of maintenance insomnia. Sometimes we call it terminal insomnia. That sounds 
Like, that sounds really that, scary. That sounds really bad. <laughs> it does. But we mean terminal like the end of the night. Um, okay. So, and when that happens, um, the first thing I do is try to understand what the patients are doing close to bedtime or before bedtime or even during the day. So one of the big themes we've been talking about is diet and exercise. Mm -hmm. And of course, this is central to everything you do, Megan. But if you have a good exercise routine and you're eating healthy and you're avoiding stimulants, and by stimulants, I don't just mean caffeine. I also mean alcohol close to bedtime. So we all think of alcohol as a hypnotic, which it is. When you first drink alcohol, it it makes you drowsy. But after its first pass metabolism through your liver, after about three or four hours, it becomes a stimulant and it can actually wake you up. So that's why when people have a couple glasses of wine right before bed, they fall asleep. And then a few hours later, they're waking up. And it's um, very common. And in fact, alcohol is by far the most common hypnotic. People abuse it to help them fall asleep more than any other medication. And if, if you want to call it a medicine, I, I, it's sure. the sub- substance that's used the most for that. But if you can get a good, clean regimen during the day of exercise and then avoiding these stimulants, that doesn't mean you can't ever have a glass of wine. I'm certainly not saying that, but just realize when you have excessive amounts and that depends on each person, that can also lead to awakenings during the night. Now, let's say you have all of that figured out. You're perfect exerciser. You don't have any stimulants. You're eating healthy and you're still waking up in the middle of the night, well, that's when you need to turn to those things we were talking about before, like stimulus control. You can do those same practices if you've been laying awake for a long period of time, getting out of bed. And it seems like that would be even harder to do, right? At like three in the morning. Yeah, yeah I would almost think like that would wake me up even more. You know? And it could, and it could. But what you're actually doing, um, so... There's, a, there's two processes that dictate our sleep. There's circadian rhythm, which is that rhythm in that 24-hour period that tells us to be sleepy at night, be awake during the day, has that dip at 2, 2.30 in the afternoon, that 2.30 feeling you get. So that, that helps regulate us. But the other process is called sleep homeostasis. And that's basically the longer you've been awake, the more this compound called adenosine that caffeine blocks builds up in your brain and compels you to fall asleep. So eventually, no matter where you are in your circadian rhythm, if you're awake long enough, your brain will compel you to fall asleep. So by doing stimulus control, even in the middle of the night, so getting out of bed, going, doing something quietly in the dark, not letting yourself worry and be awake in bed, even if you aren't able to return to the bed that night because you never get sleepy again, you're letting that adenosine, that that kind of sleep juice, if you will, build up in your brain so that it's easier to fall asleep the next night. And okay. again, you're building that association in your brain to say, it's not okay to be awake in bed. It's not okay to worry in bed. And so both of those processes are working together in that case. Genius. Yeah. And I'm assuming also that the, the sleep mask and, um, you know, it didn't even occur to me that if you're in the middle of that REM sleep and your eyes are moving and, and it is touching something that that could wake you up or mm-hmm. having light creep in from a street light through your window that could wake you up too. So it seems like there's so many, so many options here that people can try. And I, I love that. So talking about that, that deep sleep, when people refer to deep sleep, are they actually talking about the REM sleep or is there a difference between those two? Because someone did ask me, um, you know, how much deep sleep do we need each night and how can we increase that 
deep sleep stage because that's kind of the stage where you're producing mm -hmm. all of those wonderful hormones like human growth hormone and stuff like that, right? That's exactly right. So we break sleep into non-REM sleep and REM sleep. REM sleep, rapid eye movement sleep, is when we're dreaming or having nightmares, those types of things. And actually, our brainwave activity looks very similar to when we're awake. So mm -hmm. the big difference is that your brain, your, your brain stem paralyzes your, muscle, your skeletal muscle so that you're not able to move around. So the only things moving are your eyes, your diaphragm, so your breathing. The only thing with tone are your eyes, your diaphragm, and then your sphincters so you don't go to the bathroom on yourself. But the rest of your muscles are paralyzed. So yeah, you, thank, Lord, thank the Lord that we have those <laughs> sphincters still working throughout yes, the night. Yes, thank the Lord. <laughs> so that's REM sleep. And actually, the more we learn about REM sleep, the more we're not exactly sure what its function is. We, we know it does lead to problem solving, and, and sometimes dreaming can help you face situations that you might not encounter in your daily life and kind of work through that. And problem solving and insight and some clarity can come probably from REM sleep. But we have a lot of patients... Um, out there that are on antidepressants and those suppress REM sleep almost to zero in some cases. So REM sleep does not appear to be necessary um, for survival, certainly. But what you're talking about, kind of the more important deep sleep is actually in non-REM sleep. So we have mm -hmm. non-REM sleep goes into three levels, one, two, and three. And non-REM, they get deeper. And non-REM stage three is what we call slow wave sleep. Okay. And basically it's very, your brain is in these big, making these big slow waves that are all in sync together and it allows for growth hormone to be released. And it's that really restorative sleep that you can bring a marching band in and people won't wake up. So our, our slow wave sleep is starting when we're kids, it makes up um, a larger percentage of our sleep. And as we get older, it decreases. Um, some of that is just because our brain doesn't make as powerful of slow wave sleep or as, as, um, as it makes its own version of it when we get older, but it's not, doesn't quite look the same as when we're kids, but we still have that slow wave sleep that tends to predominate in the first half of the night. Whereas REM, that rapid eye movement sleep predominates in the second half of the night. So that's why you get a lot more mm -hmm. dreaming. Like if you're napping on a Saturday morning, kind of just dozing, rolling around, you have a lot of dreams because that's when that rapid eye movement sleep's coming through. But the slow wave sleep, more in the first half of the night, and ways that we can increase it, a couple ways that I don't recommend, stay, well, I would recommend if this is possible, stay young forever. If you can do that. <laughs> Done. <because> no. <laughs> you'll have that, a lot of that slow wave sleep. Um, but yeah, no, but, yeah. But seriously, um, another way that people do it, we mentioned earlier, is they'll take drugs that will help them keep them in slow wave sleep. I obviously don't recommend that, but there are medications sure. that we use to treat narcolepsy that will put you in slow wave sleep. And actually, they're, they're drugs of abuse. They're used um, as date rape drugs as well because they put you in that really deep sleep. Uh, right. But we do use it for narcolepsy, but obviously we don't recommend that either. So it kind of goes back to um, what we were talking about earlier, giving yourself enough opportunity to sleep. So not cutting out, not putting other things first, but prioritizing your sleep. And that means, that doesn't mean just when your head hits the pillow. That means starting the process a couple hours before you fall asleep, really planning out. You plan out, we all plan out our work day or our evenings, but we don't tend to take a time to plan out exactly what we're going to do to make sure we get to get and get to sleep and stay asleep at night. And so that all needs to be done um, and it depends on the person, right? Some people, 
their, their head hits the pillow and they're asleep and they sleep for eight hours. That's great. Those aren't the people that we're talking to right now. Talking right, to people right. that have fragile sleep. And so again, it's making sure everything's in check, uh, ruling out other problems during sleep, like sleep apnea. If you need to go get a sleep study, ruling that out because that will fragment mm -hmm. your sleep and break up your slow wave sleep. But also just doing those practices before bedtime, during bedtime, keeping the keeping the the, the light out. Also, if if you happen to live in a noisy area, keeping the sound out. So that could mean wearing earplugs or some people will use noisemakers. Um, those have some controversy around them with white noise, but if you have a lot of traffic or a train going by at three in the morning, you kind of have to weigh the risks and benefits there. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Now, one other question that um, a lot of people have is, can you like make up sleep? Let's say you have one night where you only get like five hours. Can you go to bed earlier the next night and try to make up for that missed sleep the night before and sleep a little extra the next night? Or is that just going to really mess you up? Like if you try to like oversleep the next night, are you just putting yourself in this bad cycle of getting too much sleep one night and not enough sleep the other night? Like what do you think about that? So this is a controversial topic. So you'll see a lot of different literature on it. Um, but yes, you can make up sleep. And I do recommend if you get a night of really poor sleep to try to, that doesn't necessarily mean you make it up hour for hour. Because as you mentioned, let's say you get four hours one night, then you get 10 the next, you might throw off your circadian rhythm. That's kind of like, yeah. jet, it's like jet lagging yourself, like flying to Hawaii. If you go to bed <laughs> at such different times and trying to come back. But if you can get a little bit more sleep than usual, maybe eight or nine hours to, to recover, I do recommend that. And, and kind of along the same lines, you can also bank sleep. Um, this is another controversial topic, but studies have shown uh, when you have patients, for instance, that are in bed for 10 hours a night for a couple weeks versus seven hours a night, and then you sleep deprive these people down to three hours a night, the people that were in bed for 10 hours a night sleeping more, they, they their skills don't drop off as quickly. And when they start getting eight hours of sleep again, they recover quicker. So it's crazy. If, yeah. So if you're getting more yeah. sleep or banking it, or let's say you're going on to um, a night shift or something, taking an hour or two during the day before going on to night shift, you can bank some of that sleep and really help protect yourself there too. But in general, Super interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I'd say in general though, unless you're a shift worker or something, it is always best to try to get the same amount of sleep uh, as, as long as we're talking about adequate sleep, seven to nine hours during the same sleep period, in particular that wake time. Really try to anchor that and don't let it go too far out or in on the weekends. So if you're if you're playing catch up on the weekends, that's okay for a little bit. But if you're getting up at five during the week and noon on the weekends, then that's that flying to Hawaii again. That Sunday night's gonna be really rough because you basically have jet lagged yourself. And so it's gonna be hard to fall asleep. Now I am a big napper. <laughs> I I take a nap I know you like are. <laughs> every day. I know, I know. And we've had conversations about this. So how beneficial are naps really? Like, do they help make up for some of that missleep at night? Like, is it better to not be a napper? Is, is like what what do we know about naps? So napping also a bit controversial, like a lot of things in sleep medicine. Um, <laughs> yeah. But really it depends on why you're napping. So mm -hmm. there, is, there was a study that came out in 2014 that showed that people who nap um, actually die from all-cause mortality or all causes of death and more frequently than people who don't nap. Okay, Stop. so this was... <laughs> so this was a big, scary study that came out that freaked everyone out. But the truth is, when you break down 
who was actually studied and why were they napping? So often people are napping because they're unhealthy or they're not getting adequate sleep at night. So they're trying to, to make up sleep. So the, the, the key is if you're only getting four or five hours of sleep at night and that's why you're napping, the, the solution would be, it would be better for you if you could kind of take that loaf of bread and consolidate it all into one block of sleep at night and yeah. get rid of the fragmented sleep where you're sleeping a little bit here, a little bit there and put it all into the nighttime. However, let's say you're someone like you who's actually getting, for the most part, adequate sleep at night, but you work out a lot, you're using your brain a lot, you're using your physical fitness a lot, then you're talking about more like, is that nap sort of a recovery for your body and your brain? And then there's really no evidence that that would be harmful. In fact, it's probably beneficial. A lot of elite athletes like Roger Federer, LeBron Mm -hmm. James, these are people who sleep uh, eight, nine hours at night, but then we'll take a two hour nap in the afternoon. And we know that they're very high performing. Um, so in that case, if you're getting adequate sleep at night and it's just to help you recover a little more, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. And that could actually probably have health benefits. Um, but if you're napping again, because your sleep is really off at night, then I would try to work on your sleep at night. Yeah, that makes a ton of sense. And I know like, Scott, my husband and I, we're so different. Like if he tries to nap, he can't just do like a 15, 20 minute power nap. It like throws him into this deep, like two hours nap and it messes up his entire day. So we're so different in that sense. Like I can power nap and like literally 10, 15 minutes and it, I'm not groggy, but I know a lot of people are like him where they're super groggy. Right. And if, and it's, there's been some Recent uh, studies that have shown that actually a 10-minute nap is better than a 30-minute nap. Um, this depends on the person, but you're right. If you get if you start going into slow-wave sleep, which is pretty early in your sleep cycle, you will have what we call sleep inertia or a lot of trouble waking up. You'll be very groggy. Whereas like a shorter nap, like 10 to 20-minute naps or what we call a power nap, you'll mm-hmm. get into those lighter stages of sleep. So you'll still get some benefits from that non-REM sleep, but you won't enter that really deep, slow-wave sleep. And um, when you do that, also remember you're, when you take a long nap, you're burning off that sleep juice, that adenosine we talked about, the caffeine blocks. So yeah. if, you burn, if you burn too much of that off, it can be really hard to fall asleep at night. So, mm-hmm. And I'll just mention kind of funny, another phenomenon that people are doing right now, it's called, uh, has a couple of names, but one of them is uh, Nappuccino. So you take <laughs> caffeine, yeah. you take caffeine while you're really kind of sleepy and then lay down for 20 minutes and then boom, you, you power. You're like when, wide awake. Yeah. When you come awake 20 minutes later, cause the caffeine's hitting you and you just got that restorative sleep from your nap. I'm not recommending this. I'm just telling you <laughs> strategies people use, um, to help Nappuccino. them kind of oh, get through their funny. day. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Well, I feel like we covered so much ground here and, and I really hope that this helped bring some clarity to anyone that's struggling out there with their sleep. Cause like we said, like, sleep really underpins so much of our health and it, it impacts so much. So we really, really appreciate you just bringing some, some light to this. And, you know, I always like to leave women with one big takeaway, something that they can walk home and like put something immediately into, into action. So what is maybe one simple thing that we can all do maybe tonight, you know, and, and hopefully here on out as a habit that, that can help us get better sleep. So for me, it's really getting that nighttime routine. Some of what we've talked about, but the overarching theme of that is strong light and dark cues. And so 
that encompasses the light bef before bedtime, during your sleep time, and in the morning, all three of those, and making sure you're getting light at the adequate time. But one thing I didn't mention is that you can actually supplement um, that turning down the lights with a little bit of melatonin. So okay. melatonin, a lot of people think of it as a hypnotic, like a sleep aid, and it does have some hypnotic properties, but actually it's more of a body clock drug. We call it a chronotrope. And you can think of it as darkness in a pill form. So what hmm. it will help you do is actually augment the darkness. So when you're getting the lights down, it, it doesn't take much, the lowest dose you can find. So I take three milligrams and cut it in half and, and because we're not taking it to try to overwhelm our hypnotic receptors. We're really trying to just get our circadian rhythm in check. So we get the right. lights down, take this is two hours before bedtime, get the lights down, take that really low dose melatonin and then relax. Again, don't, don't, if you're going to watch TV, if that's, if that's your thing and you have to do it, get those blue light blocking glasses on, but otherwise sometimes just relaxing, slowing down, reading a book that can until that really helps you get sleepy and then you'll go fall asleep and hopefully stay asleep even better when you've got that mask on. But all of that strong light and dark cues, those are things you can do right now tonight. Um, very easily to help you sleep better. I love it. Super doable. Well, thank you so much for being with us today, Dr. Brock. And we're definitely going to have to have you back because I have a feeling that this is going to maybe trigger some other questions that people have like, man, that was so good, but I kind of want to know about this. So we might have to have you back, but thank you so much for being with us today. Thanks for having me, Megan. And I would love to come back anytime and answer any of your listeners' questions. Mm -hmm.